it's been a few years now, but I went to go buy a refrigerator for the family. We just moved to Putnam, and we needed one. And so I borrowed my dad's truck and drove up to the uh, Sears shop up in Auburn, Massachusetts. I, I know this sounds crazy. A guy that has access to two trucks now, I, I didn't have a truck. I know, I know that makes me like half a man in my own opinion and many of yours, but that was just the reality. I didn't have a truck. And so I borrowed my dad's truck. I went up to Auburn, bought a refrigerator, went behind the Sears store in Auburn, Massachusetts, and the guys uh, came out of the warehouse and, and used a forklift and put it in the back of my dad's Ford Ranger standing up because everybody knows if you lay the refrigerator down, the coolant gets all in places where it's not supposed to be. And when you go home, you got to let it sit there for hours. And then your wife gets mad at you because now you have a brand new refrigerator and you can't use it for reasons that you don't really want to go into and explain. And then, you know, frustration and the children are hungry and you can't feed them. So leave the thing standing up, you know, that way when you get home, you put it in the kitchen, you plug it in, everybody's happy and your marriage is saved. So I borrowed my dad's truck standing up in the back of the Ford Ranger, big refrigerator box. I said, do, do we need to strap this thing down? And they're like, no, this thing weighs so much, man. The compressor in the bottom of this refrigerator is so heavy. You know, just take your time. This, this thing will be fine. So I start heading home on 290 South, which of course turns into 395. I'm on the highway for about 100 yards. I'm accelerating through 40 miles an hour, and I watch that refrigerator go whoop, boom, boom, in the middle of 290, right by the Auburn Mall. It's a foggy morning, low visibility, right around 930, people trying to get to work. And I'm the guy who has now pulled over to the side of the highway because I know that me sitting in the middle of the highway is not going to help anything at this point. But my refrigerator is in the middle of the highway, three lanes of traffic, all southbound. So I'm the guy watching through the rearview mirror, low vis conditions, fog, as people go, dodging at the last minute trying to get around a refrigerator that I put in the middle of 290 Southbound until the young lady came along and just pounded the refrigerator. Now she's off to the side of the road. Of course, I had called 911 immediately. Troopers responded quickly. He did the right thing. He drove up to the refrigerator with the cattle guard on his, on his, on his uh, sedan and hit the refrigerator and pushed it about 500 yards down to where it's back behind the truck where it started. So this refrigerator has been hit once and then plowed by a, rain, a, a trooper. So now it's off the side of the road, traffic resumes. Well, I, I get in big trouble. I, I'd broken some laws and I'd violated some basic safety protocols in my dad's truck. Now the laws of Connecticut are such that the insurance of the vehicle stays with the vehicle. It didn't matter that I am a fully insured driver. It was my dad's insurance that paid the claims. Why? In the state of Connecticut, insurance stays with the vehicle. It doesn't matter who's operating the vehicle. If there's an accident, the owner of the vehicle who insured the vehicle is the one who is responsible for all the damage. My dad had to be deposed by the attorneys. My dad is the one whose insurance rates went up. My dad is the one who, as far as I know, his insurance is still affected by an accident that we had 15 years ago. How do you think that made me feel? It wasn't fair. It wasn't right. It was my stupid decision. It was my haste. I took their word for it. I knew better. And I was the one that made the mistake. Now, it wasn't intentional, but at the end of the day, my dad wasn't even in Massachusetts. 
He was down in New London when this took place. But the unfairness of it fell on him, not on me, who bore the full responsibility. I took that refrigerator home, and the side of it that was all damaged by getting hit once and then plowed by the state trooper, I covered over with a dry erase board so you couldn't see it. I plugged that bad boy in and used it for five years. Finally, because it was such a reminder of my own guilt and shame, I replaced it, not because I needed to, I couldn't live with the thing any longer. Replaced it with the identical refrigerator, which we're still using to this day. It wasn't fair. Hence the prophet of Micah. The metaphor in Micah is a courtroom. The whole book, every chapter, is comprised of a courtroom scene where God is present in the courtroom in a number of different capacities. And the whole theme of the book is that it's a crazy courtroom because nothing about this courtroom is fair. Let me show you. If you have your Bibles this morning or your apps, if you could please turn to the book of Micah in the Old Testament, beginning in chapter 6. Let's take a look at at chapter 6, verses 1 through 5, as we illustrate the metaphor that is found in Micah of the unfairness of how God has really designed the world to work as illustrated in a crazy courtroom scene. Micah chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. Now listen to what the Lord is saying. Rise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. Listen to the Lord's lawsuit. You mountains and enduring foundations of the earth, because the Lord has a case against his people, and he will argue it against Israel. The Lord has a case. He's going to law. He's going to court against his people. He wants the mountains, which last for all generations, to hear so that even people come and go. The mountains will be an enduring testimony to this lawsuit that God is bringing against his people. Verse 3, my people... What have I done to you, and how have I wearied you? Testify against me. The Lord's saying, I've got stuff against you, and we're going to talk about it, but I want you to say how you feel I have mistreated you. What have you got against me as your God? Bring it to me. Testify against me. Verse 4, indeed, he goes on to say the kinds of things that he's done for his people. I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from that place of slavery. I sent Moses, Aaron, and Miriam ahead of you. I delivered you from the bondage of Egypt, and I gave you good leadership to follow. Verse 5, my people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, proposed, what Balaam, son of Beor, answered him, and what happened from the Acacia Grove to Gilgal, so that you may acknowledge the Lord's righteous acts. He's referring to famous moments in Israel's history. He's saying, remember that time you were wandering around in the desert, and an evil king sent out a man of God to come and call down curses on you? And when the man of God, because he accepted a bribe, decided to try and curse you, I put praises for you and promises for you in his mouth. Remember that? His, his name, that was Balak, king of Moab, paid for it. And Balaam, son of Beor, tried to answer. Remember the guy whose mule had to talk to him and say, what are you doing right now? And he starts to hit the mule. Like, what's going on? The mule was trying to prevent him to go and call down curses on God's people. God did amazing things to call down blessings on his people instead of curses. He's reminding them, hey, do you guys remember what happened at the Acacia Grove and at Gilgal? The Acacia Grove was the last campsite in the desert before they crossed the Jordan River into the Promised Land. The first campsite in the Promised Land was Gilgal. He's saying, you remember what happened, how I provided for the miraculous crossing of the Jordan River? 
Remember how you were camping on one side of the river in the acacia grove, and I made the river stop flowing, and you hauled the stones out of the river, and you piled them up in the promised land, and, the, and that first campsite was named Gilgal. Do you remember that? He's reminding the people of Israel. You've got nothing against me, but I've got some stuff against you. It's a courtroom scene in the first five verses of chapter 6. And what's interesting, if you follow the courtroom scene, what's not fair about it, what's not right about it, what makes it crazy is that the Lord is playing a number of roles. He is playing the role of chief witness against Israel. He's playing the role of chief plaintiff against Israel. He's playing the role of chief prosecutor against Israel. And he's also playing the role of judge. And you're like, wait a second, wait a second, wait a second. That's not a courtroom. One guy doesn't get to be all those things. He doesn't get to bring charges. He doesn't get to prosecute the charges. He doesn't get to explain the charges. And he sure as heck doesn't get to be the judge to determine what happens to the guilty party. That's not fair. That's not right. What kind of a judge is this? this is, but yet this is a scene that we find in the book of Micah. The big idea is that something fair is not going down here. And it's because God is playing all of the roles in the courtroom, saying, mountains, listen to my case against the people of Israel. They're guilty, and I'm going to judge them as well as make the case and prosecute the case as well. It's not fair. Well, what's the meaning here, continuing in the passage in verse 6? What should I bring? So the people basically say, you know what, this sounds like a crazy courtroom, but how do we make you happy? Because at the end of the day, you're God, right? So you're playing all these roles in this courtroom metaphor, and it's crazy, and it's not fair. But if we were to make you happy, what would we do? Verse 6. What should I bring before the Lord when I come to bow before God on high? Should I come before him with burnt offerings, with year-old calves? Would the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams or with 10,000 streams of oil? Should I give my firstborn for my transgression, the child of my body for my own sin? They're saying, should we do tough buddies every other week? Should we do princess parties all throughout the spring? Should we always be working this hard? Should we always be making this amount of sacrifice? Should we always be putting this much effort? Is that what it takes to make you happy, God? Because it feels like we can't make you happy. And you're the judge, you're the jury, you're the plaintiff, you're the prosecutor, you're the chief witness. And it doesn't feel fair. Can we just keep doing things for you? Is that what you want? Is that what you want to make you happy? Verse 8. Mankind, the meaning of the metaphor. He has told you what is good and what, is, what the Lord requires of you to act justly, to love faithfulness, and to walk humbly with your God. This is the answer. You want to please the Lord? You want to keep me happy? You want to serve me? You want to delight me? Act justly, love faithfulness, and walk humbly with me. It's a lopsided, not fair trial where the Lord is playing all of the roles to a frustrated people who cry out, what do you want us to do? And this is his reply. Justness, faithfulness, and humbly walking with God. Now the book of Micah is quoted two times in the New Testament. So we see that the metaphor is a crazy courtroom. It's a courtroom that we would all say it's not fair. That's not just. You don't get to be that way in a courtroom. And the meaning of the courtroom is, here's how I want you to act and evaluate on the evidence. I don't need you to do anything. I need you to walk with me humbly, and the rest is going to sort itself out. That's the meaning of the metaphor. That's the message to the people of Israel during the time of Micah. Now, Micah is quoted twice in the New Testament, and it adds a whole nother level of understanding to this metaphor 
and the meaning. If you have your Bibles this morning, turn with me. First of all, both of these occurrences of Micah in the New Testament are in the book of Matthew. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 2, verse 6. Once upon a time, the Lord decided to move in a powerful and special way and sent his son as a human child, divine and human, to live on the planet. Now some bad guys, this is not fair, some bad guys heard that Jesus was coming and they wanted to know where he could be found. And this passage is very familiar, you hear about every Christmas. Matthew chapter 2, verse 6. The wise men are called to Herod, and Herod says, Where may I find the king of the Jews? Here's the answer. comes from Micah chapter 5, verse 2, as quoted in Matthew chapter 2, verse 6. And you, where was Jesus born? Bethlehem. This is from Micah, as found in Matthew. In the land of Judah are by no means least among the leaders of Judah, because out of you will come a leader who will shepherd my people, Israel. Now, fascinatingly enough, if you go back into the book of Micah and take a look at that verse in the original context, there's something there that is not included in Matthew's account, but is already in the conscience of Israel. Because here's how that verse continues in Matthew chapter 5, verse 2. Bethlehem, Ephrathah, you are small among the clans of Judah. One will come from you to be ruler over Israel for me. Yeah, we know that. Matthew just said that, right? Here's what they didn't tell Herod. As the verse continues, his origin is from antiquity, from eternity. The leader that Herod was looking for, not only is he called of God to lead the people of Israel, his past is derived from ancient origins. His leadership, according to Micah, as quoted in Matthew, is eternal. So whatever the Lord is about to do here, Whatever God is about to do with the advent of Jesus Christ, it's been coming for a long time. His origins are eternal and ancient. I'd like to show you the second time that Micah is quoted in the New Testament. It's also found in the book of Matthew. It's one of the most difficult verses in the New Testament, one of the most challenging teaches that, uh, teachings that Jesus has for his people. And he quotes directly from the book of Micah. Because here's what was happening in Micah's time. Some people were saying, that's what you require? I don't have to have all the outreaches. I don't have to have all the offerings. I don't have to have all the sacrifices. I don't have to dedicate my children to die for your service. You just want me to walk humbly with you? That's what you want? And their hearts were softened, and they began to walk with the Lord. And what happened is tension happened during the time of Micah. Because some people were like, hey, this is not fair. You're judge, jury, prosecutor, witness, and plaintiff. That's not right. That's not fair. We're out. I don't care how simple you make it sound. I don't care how authentic you make it sound. I don't care that this is what you're asking me to do, to just simply walk humbly with you. My heart is hardened against you, and I'm not. The problem was is they had a family member who said, I am. And so conflict started to happen in the families of Israel. And that's, there's a whole chapter about it in the book of Micah, where basically Micah is saying, because God is moving powerfully in the lives of some of you, and some of you are not responding because you can't get over the unfairness of this courtroom scene, there's now there's tension in your family. Some of you want to go to temple, some of you don't. Some of you want to bring the kids to church on Sunday, some of you don't. Some of you want to give tithes and offerings to support the local ministry, some of you don't. Some of you want to come to help be a part of an outreach and sweat on a hot day, some of you don't. There's tension. Some of our hearts are softened towards the things of God because we can't believe that even though the unfairness of the court scene leads to 
this verdict that strikes us as odd is just walk humbly with God, we do. Some of us hear that and we say, no, no, my faith is going to be about pleasing God by my own efforts, and that's the way it's going to be. Tension in our own families, as some of our hearts are softened and some of them are not. Jesus addresses this head on, and he uses Micah. Matthew chapter 10, uh, beginning in verse 32. This is Jesus' teaching. Jesus says, Therefore, everyone who will acknowledge me before men, I will also acknowledge him before my Father in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father in heaven. Don't assume that I came to bring peace on the earth. Did you hear that? That's what Jesus just said. Don't assume that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword, for I came to turn. And he quotes Micah, specifically Micah chapter 7, verses 5 through 6. He's diving deep into this context that I just explained to you. Tension between family members, because some have faith and some don't. A man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies will be the members of his household. Some people cannot handle the unfairness of the courtroom scene. The person who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. The person who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever doesn't take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Anyone finding his life will lose it. And anyone losing his life because of me will find it. One of the most challenging teachings of the New Testament. Wasn't the gospel all about loving our family and being good husbands and fathers and mothers and sons and daughters? And Yes, it absolutely is. But can I just remind you that it's not fair. Because sometimes it feels like God is judge, jury, prosecutor, witness, and everything all wrapped into one. But praise the Lord, the plan from eternity has been one more role for God to bear in this court case. It's not found in the book of Micah. It's just prophesied that one is going to come who is of ancient origins, and he's going to lead Israel. And Jesus came, and how did he lead? God is not just the judge, the prosecutor, the witness, and the jury. He also bears the punishment. It's not fair. It's not right. You were driving the truck that you borrowed. You were the one that listened to somebody who didn't know what they were talking about. You were the one that put 300 pounds of sheet metal in the middle of a highway. You were the one watching helplessly in a vehicle that you borrowed while people are getting hurt. And somebody else paid the penalty. It's not fair. You see, Micah makes it clear that God is the judge, the jury, the prosecutor, and the chief witness. And he prophesies that he's coming to pay the penalty. Matthew clarifies that you can find this child in Bethlehem. And his life is known as one of suffering. It forces his family into exile. Jesus, too, flees to Egypt for a short period of time, comes back, grows up, and gives his life to pay the penalty to bring to a successful resolution of this unjust and unfair court scenario. You'll never understand the beauty of the gospel call and the fairness of it until we've wrestled with the unfairness of it as found in the book of Micah. He's a minor prophet with a major message. This, and we've seen this. Some of you have made decisions of faith and it's brought a degree of tension into your family. And it's been hard for you to wrestle with that. But here's the promise that the New Testament teaches, especially as taught with understanding of the book of Micah, is that if we could perfectly resolve tension in our families and our own power 
we would have already done it. If we could perfectly provide for our families, we would have already done it. And the fact of the matter is, is that we try and we should because we love our families. But when it comes to resolving family tensions and family disputes and perfectly providing for our families, we can't and we fail. And the tensions and the problems are still there. What Jesus is saying, and it's hard to hear, is saying, put first things first. The court case against you has been resolved, and it's not fair. Jesus pays the penalty. If you lay Jesus as the foundation of your family, it's the best hope that you have for resolving the disputes. Because if Jesus does not come first in our own lives, then we have no hope for resolving the disputes and the dissensions that are in our own family. Because if we could resolve them, we already would have. This is the message of the New Testament. It's not fair. It's not fair. It can feel like the world is against us. But the answer is, Jesus has borne the punishment. Jesus has made the payment. And by faith in Jesus Christ, that's where healing for our families begins. When we publicly declare, this court case against me is not fair, and yet I accept what Jesus has done for me. I am known by his name. And it may not perfectly resolve tension in my family. In fact, it might bring more tension in my family. But I know the answer is this way because it's certainly not the way that I've tried to provide for myself. I hope that's an encouragement to you this morning. There is a finish line of faith that begins a journey, and it starts with placing our faith in Jesus Christ. Now, we have a, a very cool way to conclude our time together this morning. I'm going to ask the worship team to come on up and start singing and playing us out. In just a few moments, we have a, a member of our church who's been here from day one who is going to stand up and make a public profession of faith and be baptized. She will not deny his name. She will be known publicly as a follower of Christ. And she, too, has seen dissension in her family, and the Lord is working through it. And to prove it, she's going to show you that the Lord has brought healing, and there's still difficult times. And so I'm going to ask Trish and Sarah to head to the beautiful overlook that is to my right, your left, just down this trail. They're going to go step into the water, and we're going to join them as the worship team sings us out this morning for a brief baptism service. Lunch is coming. It will be here at 11.15 or so. Following lunch, we'll have a, a little briefing for those of you who are able to volunteer and help with the largest and the toughest and the muddiest kid-friendly obstacle course in eastern Connecticut. And so we'd love to have you stay for the rest of the day as well. Would you join me as I pray? Heavenly Father, thank you for this time together this morning. We love the fact that we get to make a sacrifice for you today. But first and foremost, can we just walk humbly with you? We've given our time. We've given our money. we put some work into this event. We know that you're going to use it to draw people to yourselves. We know that we're going to make new friends. We have 140 families representing 250 children who have said they're going to be here today. This is our opportunity to show the love that you have for us as expressed in the power of our testimony. Father, help us to make new friends, to make new relationships, and to bring more fame to Jesus. Father, thank you for this opportunity to make this sacrifice. But first and foremost, it's about our faith. There's nothing we can do to please you other than to walk humbly with you and to take your name. You want to be known by us, and we want to be known by you. So, Father, we thank you for this opportunity to think about these things. We thank you for your word. We thank you for this opportunity to witness a baptism this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.